and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. Today, we will be talking about quite a number of things. That's right. I'm Cole, and I'm going to be talking about Eid al-Fitr, the end of Ramadan. I'm Beth, and I'm going to be finishing up my segment on water beads. This is Sydney, and today is... National Train Day, and I have a fun quiz for you all. Is it about trains? Maybe. (laughs) And this is Randy, and I will begin my summertime series about vacations. So today I will be talking about early vacations before the United States. As always, we begin with our holiday happenings for the week, and we have a couple this week. One, tomorrow, as of this recording, is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Bethy. Thank you. We'll be taking Bethy out for dinner tomorrow. Uh, We had the opportunity to see one of my brothers, sister-in-law, and one of my nephews today. So we actually ate out today as well. Yep. Double eat out day. Sounds expensive. (laughs) Weekend. Weekend. That's right. Sounds expensive. (laughs) Thank you, Cole. But tomorrow is Mother's Day. So one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit was Disney and the holidays in Disney. So what I found is a lot of the... um, second or third tier holidays are actually celebrated in Disney, but they don't tell you a lot about it in advance. Okay. So if you think about like Mother's Day or St. Patrick's Day, what I would call like the second, third level of holidays, they will usually do like some special things the day of, maybe the weekend of, but you won't necessarily find out about them a long time in advance. They may have special merchandise. A lot of times they'll do special cupcakes um, like special food, food yeah. along the way. Sometimes special merchandise and sometimes uh, special character kind of things along right. the way. I've been seeing different like food, like Mother's Day food on Instagram already at Disney. Yes, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. So they have special foods and merchandise, but just not a lot of advertising about it. Right. But typically you'll have an opportunity to celebrate that day. So like uh, we will be going to Magic Kingdom on Memorial Day this year. So there'll probably be a number of holiday-related merchandise and events at Magic Kingdom this year. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do for Memorial Day this year as well. But I encourage you, if you happen to be in one of the parks over a holiday, no matter what big or small kind of holiday, to look around and see what may be happening in that park like via their website or something like that. Right, social media, etc. That's right. So one of the things that I was thinking about as I thought about these two things together, was that mothers in Disney movies slash cartoons don't seem to fare very well. (laughs) They don't live very long. (laughs) At least in, yeah, definitely Disney ones. (laughs) So I was wondering if you could think of any mothers that made it beyond the beginning of the movie. Yes. In Disney films. Okay, what what came to mind? Now, we're not stepmothers. Mulan. Oh, yeah, Mulan's mom. Yep. Is Rap- yes. Rapunzel. Uh, the Princess and the Frog. Tiana. Cole said Rapunzel. The Aristocats. The mom That's and right. the Aristocats. Do you remember was... the name? Duchess. No, I did not remember yes, that. Yes, Duchess. Mother of Toulouse, Marie, and Berluse. Yes. Berluse. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I just one. remember Marie. That's right. Yes. There's, um, actually, there's actually oh, several others. Uh, Brave. Yes. That was the one. Merida's mother. She had yep. a, her mother had a big role in. Yeah. yeah. Turned into one. a big bear. A big bear role. <laughs> a very big bear role. <laughs> That's right. 
Yes, uh, and oh, Queen Eleanor. That was her name in, in Brave. Okay, and there's others. Yes, there's Lady from Lady and the Tramp. <gasps> That's right. She did become a mother, I guess. Mary Darling from Peter Pan. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Sleeping Beauty's mom came back. Queen Lee. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh-huh. The Incredibles mom, Helen. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, she was a big part of that thing. That's that's right. a girl. One of mom's favorite movies. Think blood, 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 blood. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, um, Zootopia. Zootopia. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So Judy Hopps' mom, Bonnie, made it through. That's true. So there actually is a fair number that... Yeah, uh, you need some real context with... Yeah. What you said. I know. I know. Well, well, I knew mom would know. Yeah. Most of the princesses' parents, most of the princesses' moms didn't live. Like, there's a little... Video vignette. Vignette, yeah. Vanellope went into a room with a bunch of princesses, and she said, I don't even have a mom. And they all said, neither do we. And there was just a big bunch of them. Right, yeah, yeah. A lot of the princesses didn't, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. It's funny, I just thought of Hercules' mom... Yes, Hera, I guess. You're right. Was it her? No, it was not her. No! Because he was a demigod. <laughs> yeah. So it was Zeus and an unnamed. Yeah, but she wasn't in the movie, was she? Yeah, Hera was his mom in the movie. In the movie? She yes. That was so wrong. They did that really wrong. Well, it doesn't matter. It's a Disney yeah. movie. They don't want to yeah. talk about the family dynamics of Hercules. <laughs> they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They don't want to get into it. Do you remember that SNL sketch talking about the Greek gods? And they were like, oh, we've all turned into animals. <laughs> done unspeakable things. I don't remember that. That's no, funny. Yeah, that's I don't. Funny. The last one I'll mention was Perdita from 101 Dalmatians. Perdita, yes, yeah. Was, Pongo uh, and Perdita. So there were, oh, wait, and Kanga. How could I forget Kanga from Winnie oh, yeah. the Pooh? Oh, and... Um, Nala? No, no, that was his wife. Um... <laughs> Lines Simba's there. mom. Yeah, she survived. I mean, Mufasa yeah. did. Well, and but, presumably, right. Mrs. Robin from you know Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin's mom. Right. <laughs> we never we heard, don't know that. We've never heard. Sarabi. Sarabi. That's right. Sarabi. Yes. The other holiday happening that I was very excited about was that my annual keepsake ornament club membership box came from this Hallmark. week Ooh. from Hallmark that's right Ooh. part of the club I am part of the club and, <laughs> and one of the things that I love about that is that I get the dream book of new ornaments early before Ooh. other people have access to it and it's May now so yeah that's quite early yes <laughs> normally we don't see it till July maybe maybe in June July did you get a decoder ring too nope no <laughs> decoder ring it's actually raised. That's he was petting the top of the dream book. Um, <laughs> it's embossed, right? That's right. That's what embossed. he was saying. It was embossed. And the dream book is larger than the normal ones that you get in the store. So it's easier to you know see and read. And also the Keepsake Ornament Club Kit comes with the dream book. It also comes with the Festive Favorites Keepsake Ornament Club Cookbook with about, I don't know, 10, 15 recipes so, in it. He's going to want you to cook all of those. <laughs> I already told her to read it. It comes with a Christmas everyday 18-month calendar. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, very fun. And it comes with some very special items. It came with, actually this year, it came with a $20 off coupon for a ornament. Sweet. I know, exactly. That's what I said. And then it comes with this fun ornament holder that's got a snowflake base and then a hook that goes up probably, I don't know, 10 inches or so. So you can hang an ornament. Right. It swirls high. around and it ends in a pearl. It's lovely. Right. And then it also came with five snowflake ornament hooks. That Ooh. match the 
snowflake base, and they're very solid. Yeah. And then the coup de croix is the 20th anniversary Toy Maker Santa Keepsake Ornament Club ornament. Okay, that is so many words. It is so many words, <laughs> but it's worth it because it is. Yes, it says just as Toy Maker Santa works tirelessly to create joy in everything he makes. Ken Crow, who was the creator of the ornament, never stops trying to surprise and delight us. Celebrating the 20th anniversary of his original Toymaker Santa, this magic ornament proves that cheer, wonder, and the magic of Christmas are timeless. So it has a small crank on the side, and it has a, what is this called, a little windmill, like a German... Um, it has like propellers on the top right. that go around. It's probably something fun like a, a Winzerschwarzer. <laughs> <laughs> Crank turns uh, that as well as turns the little front scene and lights up, plays some music. So it's a very, very fun ornament and it plays Jolly Old St. Nicholas. I knew it said somewhere on here. So that was a very fun surprise. So we looked it up and it's called a German Christmas Pyramid. No idea what it's called in German, actually, but... It's spelled pyramid with an E on the end. Is it really? German, yeah. I looked up the translation. Oh, well, there you go. So and you, little propellers at the top. Yeah, so you can kind of assume that it's probably pronounced the same way, but much louder and more angrily. <laughs> Maybe so. So with that, we will switch back from Christmas to our summertime topics and to Cole and Beth finishing up their topics from last week. Awesome. Awesome. So last week I talked about Ramadan and the month of fasting and how each night there would be a breaking of the fast. Well, Eid al-Fitr is the celebration at the end of Ramadan, which is the festival of the breaking of the fast. So there's a whole festival involved? That's yep. fun. So it's a very important religious holiday that's celebrated by Muslims worldwide. It's celebrated on the first day of Shawwal, which is the 10th month in the Islamic calendar. And interestingly, it is the only day of Shawwal which Muslims are not permitted to fast. That's so funny. You cannot, yeah, you cannot fast on Eid al-Fitr. Now, is it literally the last day of Ramadan? No, it is not the last day of Ramadan. It is the first day of Ramadan. Shawal. Ramadan is the ninth month. Shawal is the tenth month. Oh, okay, gotcha. So it's the day after. So it's the day after Ramadan. So every day in Ramadan is the fast. Gotcha. There's a number of services and special prayers that are involved with Eid al-Fitr. That first word Eid refers to an Islamic religious festival. So there's a number of Eids in the Islamic faith. So Eid al-Fitr began with the Prophet Muhammad back when Islam first came into being. The festivals originated in Medina after Muhammad left Mecca. And if you didn't know, Muhammad was originally forced to leave Mecca by all of the the polytheists there who wanted to worship their different gods. So he left and he went to Medina, and that's where this festival began. I could have seen VeggieTales doing like a flanograph story of that. <laughs> Just, you know. um, I doubt it. <laughs> VeggieTales is true. Kristen. So Eid al-Fitr or Eid ul-Fitr is practiced a little differently in the Sunni and Shia faith. 
which are the two uh, denominations of Islam. And there's some logistical differences in the number of prayers and the way that they're practiced. Generally, the festival has the same form of celebration, both in Shia and Sunni Islam. Now, when you say celebration, I think of like a party. Right, so it's it's a lot of feasting, and it is a festival day. It's very... Most Muslim holidays are very Mm family-oriented and very community-oriented. So it's usually a lot of people coming together in big groups to enjoy themselves. So it's practiced a little differently from country to country. In Saudi Arabia, where actually Arabia in the Hejaz, which is that region of the countries where Islam first began. So the Saudis decorate their homes and prepare large meals for family and friends. It varies culturally depending on the region, but hospitality is very important in the practice of the festival. But there are certain shops that will give out small gifts for free, like small, like a chocolate or something. When people make purchases, a lot of people will go out and purchase rice or other staples and either give them to the less fortunate or leave them at the doors of the less fortunate. So then, as I always try to do, I'm going to take it over to India. I'm just going to talk about Saudi Arabia and then India. In India, the night before the celebration, they have a Chandrat. So that's a Bengali, Urdu... Hindi event in India, which means Night of the Moon. So Muslims in India, Bangladesh, other places in the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, they'll go shopping, they'll visit bazaars and malls with their families, make it sort of a shopping night. Okay. Fun. I wonder if there's more vendors than normal. Like there's right, like, like the Kindle markets in Germany at Christmas time. Wonder if there's like big vendor areas out for those kind of festivities. Yeah, yeah. On that night, there's a lot of formal greetings in the traditional Islamic fashion, and mendi is very common among women and girls. We know it as henna, the the decorating of. Hands and feet in elaborate patterns. That's another thing that's very big during that shopping night. And it's very distinctive. So this festival is celebrated all over the world, all over the uh, world of Islam, from Morocco over to Indonesia, all the way up into the Balkans and Eastern Europe. India and Saudi Arabia are just two examples of many places that have different customs and different local ways to celebrate Eid al-Fatr. We celebrate it in the United States, too. A lot of people will buy new clothes for the celebration, and there's a lot of families coming together. A number of schools are closed on the celebration day. And often, gifts are exchanged among children. Fun. Interesting. Thank you for sharing about Ramadan. It's a holiday that I haven't known much at all about, so thank you. An interesting holiday month. That's right. Yeah. Last week, I had talked about water gel beads, and over the week, I got to try a couple kinds. So I got something called Gemnique Decorative Accents, and that was from a decorating website, and I got one from a kid's website called Sensory For You, and that was the Ocean Colors. Over the week, I tried both of them. Each of them had... 
their own directions with them, which was very helpful. The Dewdrop Ocean Breeze, which are the multicolored ocean-looking ones, it's said to add one tablespoon of bees to a half gallon of clean water. So we did half of that. We did a half tablespoon of beads to a quarter gallon of water. And they were very interesting because when they first started swelling, they looked fuzzy. It yeah. looked like, like fuzzy pom-poms were... Yeah, almost were like they were there. coming apart a little bit. Right. Very odd. Like blurry. Right. <laughs> yeah. You don't just want to check your eyesight, but they literally were blurry. Yeah. Like I would have been suspicious... About how blurry they were on the end, you know, on the yeah. edges, had I not seen it myself. Right. right. It yeah. was very interesting. So then we have the water beads from Gemnique. Now, these water beads are clear, completely clear. Yeah, it was a little scary. They <laughs> <laughs> kind of lose them. And you put them in a flat, Sweden, like, tr- rectangle container. container filled with water, right? But if right. it was just like in a jar or whatever, I wouldn't know that the water would be filled with these things unless I, like, try to drink it. Right. Well, yeah, hopefully you wouldn't drink, drink random water filled. Right. <laughs> but, yes, when we first put them in, the beads, they were really interesting because I spread them all out. I dumped them all in different places in the flat rectangular container, mm-hmm. and they all came together. Do you remember, Randy? Yeah. They all kind of... Congregated Those together. are the clear yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. They all came together, and it was just like, that is so interesting. Yeah. So then... And even, like, over time, once they were further away, slowly, like, yeah. migrated, and then the closer they got, the faster they went. And they, and they stuck together. And, but they were all flat. Yes. It wasn't like they clumped. Nope. It was like a flat clump. Right. Yeah. They just kept adding to the edge. Yeah. Then we let them sit, and I would go over now and again and look, and they were clear. I mean, these things are clear. And I would move the rectangular container a little bit and you would see a little movement that was not normal for water afterward to us they never looked fuzzy (laughs) right because you couldn't see them right i let both of them sit overnight so the next day i took a strainer and i was scooping out the clear ones and it was so fun they just kept coming and coming (laughs) and coming it was amazing how many the dewdrop ocean breeze ones were big and colorful and rubbery and just exactly what they were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I was a little worried that they might kind of disintegrate, that they weren't just... Well, yeah, because they got fuzzy. Right. I was worried that they might not be the right quality, but they were great and they look really nice. The other thing I got was submersible lights. And this is called submersible floral lights. And... These come with remote controls, so I put them in the bottom of the vases before I put the beads in. And they have 12 different colors. Some of them are pretty similar, but 12 different colors. And these are the lights, right? The lights have The lights, colors. in addition to white and just clear. They also strobe, they fade, they flash. There's some other things to do. I found for both of these, it showed the nicest with the white, But it's very interesting, especially with the clear, to see the different colors. And Randy and I were thinking that based on the size of our vases, it might be a good idea to put two in the bottom of them if we want that color to really show through. So I was thinking about doing that too. I put my clear beads back in the rectangular bin with some more water. 
to see if they're going to swell anymore. It seemed to me like they were getting a little bit less, but I really couldn't tell all that much, so I just did it. So that's going to be fun over the next few days to play with that some more. I really enjoyed it. And we had some in a vase, and it looked like it was shrinking. And we thought, oh, let's try to just add some water to the vase to see if that would pump them up. And then, so we did that on one day. The next day we went and looked at them, and all the water was still at the bottom. So basically the little, right. little circles had raised up above the water and stayed there, and they didn't absorb. Basically the bottom layer was touching the bottom water. Right. Well, because they floated on the... On top, yeah, right. of the water. Yeah. So. And they didn't absorb the water like we thought they would. Right. So... It's very interesting. Which is why you took them all out of that base to spread them out and see if they could absorb water that way. Correct. My thought process when I was reading about these was, oh, you just dump water on it and they'll just absorb all that right. water. Reabsorb it. But they really didn't. They just sat on top of it. Even overnight. So, either they didn't need any more water, or these particular ones you need to have flat. Right. I'm very excited. This is a fun experiment and a fun product to use. In the wake of that, I'm going to just give some fun, different questions and answers about the beads. And just as a synopsis, the water beads are non-edible beads, usually non-toxic not bad for the environment. They're about the size of a marble, but you can get bigger ones. They're made of a combination of water and a water-absorbing polymer. They're called SAPs, or super-absorbent polymers. They're made of tiny particles that stick together and form long chains, and they sometimes come pre-soaked and also come dry, waiting to be soaked in water. Now, we got them dry, and the preschool director at the preschool at our church said that she purchased hers already wet. I didn't even know you could really get them that way. So that was interesting to me. Yeah, they're a little bit, they're definitely slippery. <laughs> they're very slippery. Right, so they can get away from you too. Yes. Which well, is, and they'll bounce all over the place. They do bounce they too. Yeah. yeah. Which is a lot of fun for kids. I mean, if you think about putting them in a big, yes, a big bin, bin right. how fun is that? I mean, I had fun just trying to grab my submersible lights out of them. <laughs> and you were convinced that one was hiding beneath one of yes. your submersible lights. Yes, I was. Which it was not. That's what you two said. <laughs> That's what you and Dad said. I'm going to go through some questions that I found. Good. How long do water beads last? Water beads last up to two years. How amazing is that? <laughs> That's is, what is it that, actually says. Is that also a question? <laughs> yeah. What happens at the end of two years? They just dry. They can't absorb any more water, maybe? They or just... if you keep them reconstituted, so it's like, maybe? It's like a process. They last for two years, and then they, at that point, they would break down. Hmm. So are they, do they like start looking kind of crappy after a year like and a half? Raisin-like? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's like two years, the end, complete end of the road. They're like shriveled little. So two years from this May on that podcast, we'll let you know. There you go. It said, if mixed in soil for purposes of moisture retention, they may be functional up to seven to nine years. Wow. That's a lot of time. Another question is, how much water do you add to water beads? Water beads instructions, we found them to be on our packets. And they were different. Each one was different, depending on the packet. Can you freeze water beads? It turns out they stay roughly the same size and just became suspended in the ice. To freeze water beads, you'll need some plastic cups. This person put them in the freezer overnight 
pop them out of the cups and into plastic bin filled with water. Now, one of the things that I had read was bikers sometimes will take handkerchiefs and put frozen water beads in them and wrap them around their necks to stay cool. So you can use the water beads to stay cool. And I thought about us going to Disney. I thought, you know, maybe it's worth taking some water beads, freezing them, and seeing how well I do with a water cool beads on your neck. Can you color clear water beads? The short answer is yes. You'll need to fill up the container with water for each color that you plan on making and add the desired amount of gel food dye. And then as the water beads expand, they will absorb the colored water. Easy peasy. You should have done that. That would have been interesting. I know. I thought about that too. I still can. You can still do it. Yeah. You can do a lot of different fun things with them. Decorating with water beads without flowers or anything is fun. We were playing around with that. You can use them to... And I thought this was funny. You can put fresh flowers in them or plastic flowers. And it made me laugh because I thought... That's true. You know, plastic flowers actually last a lot longer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you can get some nice silk ones with plastic yeah. stems. And then you could even put the different, the lights underneath. Mm-hmm. And, so it could be that's a lot a of fun. Idea. Yeah, I was even thinking, you know, that would be a very pretty wedding, like centerpieces on yes. the tables right. and stuff like that. And that's with the lights underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what they used for Trisha's sister's wedding. Oh, that's right. Centerpieces for her tables at her reception. As well as lights, they had them in other places too. But yes, weddings are a very common place to use these. And the other area of use is for kids to use a sensory play. That's fun. That is very fun. I've really enjoyed that. I'm going to have to try, I guess, the food coloring in the water and see how that works. Yeah. I bet that water beads have at some point been on a train. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I bet that's how they get places. Thank you, Mom, for telling us more about the water beads, and it was very fun to touch them as well. It was. It was an activity. They were so firm. I was afraid they were going to be squishy, Mm -hmm. but these were great. These were a lot of fun. They just bounce. You have to be careful. Another fun thing today, if you all did not see our Facebook post, is train day. So happy train day. (laughs) Woo-woo! And that was unplanned. That was unplanned. So I have a little quiz for you all. This is just a little online quiz about the history of trains. Test yourself and see how knowledgeable you are. So, question one. Which trains are used to climb steep hills and mountains? Choo-choo. <laughs> okay. Thomas. I don't know the trains. A, freight trains. B, electric trains. C, steam trains. Or D, cog and rack trains. Dang it. I was hoping one would be mountain climbing train. <laughs> um, I'm going to say four. Uh, A, B, C, D. Okay, it's D. He's going to say D. I'm going to say D. <laughs> well, she's she's counting them off on her fingers. Because I don't have letters. <laughs> <laughs> you could have had letters in A, B, C, D. My segment's done. <laughs> I'm just going to go. All right. Um, what was... What Freight, we- electric... Steam, hog, and rack. I'm going to say steam. C or three. Okay. I don't want to say A or B, so I'm going to say 4D. <laughs> 4D. Okay. D is correct. <gasps> Good hog job, you guys. and rack trains have a cog that meshes with a toothed 
rail on the track. Nice! So it is used to climb steep hills and mountains. All right, next question. Question two. What was the fastest form of transportation before trains? A, aircraft. B, tractor. It's shifts. C, stagecoach. Or D, automobile. Ships was not an <laughs> Stage, option. Stagecoach. <laughs> stagecoach. Wait, what are the options? C, three, stagecoach. Aircraft, All right, cut out tractor. the stupid ones. <laughs> All right, is stagecoach the only one that's reasonable on there? Yes. Okay, then stagecoach. <laughs> it's not a trick question. Horse-drawn stagecoaches were the fastest form of transportation. Mail coaches average seven miles per hour. Ooh. Well, I mean, ships were the fastest form of transportation. But, I know. think it's not all land. land transportation, though. It didn't specify <laughs> land transportation. Okay, question three. When was the first steam train built? A, 1704, B, 1698, C, 1804. 1804, C, 1804. Yeah, I'll go with that. Okay, you are correct. The first steam locomotive was built by British engineer Richard Trevithick in 1804. All right, question four. Which train ran on the world's first Intercity rail line. A. The Orient Express. B. Thomas. <laughs> that was a tight engine. <laughs> I, um, I think you mean the Sodor line. <laughs> C. C. Tahoe. Or D. Rocket. A. C. C. Oh, it was D. Rocket. Rocket was the train used on the line between Liverpool and Manchester. Oh, I was looking for a British name, but there wasn't one in there. You should have chosen Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> it Thomas. says because the Thomas. British were building railroads before we were. Yeah, it says Thomas the Tank Engine is a fictional talking train. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> yes, he still could have been the first <laughs> in his magical world. All right, question five: Which fuel was used? To power 19th century American steam locomotives. A. Oil. B. Wood. C. Electricity. D. Gold. B. B. Wood. B. Wood. Gold? B. Uh, B. Wood. D. Gold. (laughs) Okay. It was wood. (laughs) Maybe if you're Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) And you've got a big room of coins that you can dive into as you're... Yeah. Gold-powered train takes you there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Probably made of gold, too, right? While European trains used coal, many American locomotives burned wood because it was plentiful. Interesting. I, th- I was waiting for coal, but yeah. I know, right? Question six. How do freight trains pull very heavy loads? A, they move slowly. B, they use many engines. C, they run downhill. Or D, they burn diesel. Slowly. Many engines. Okay, it was B. Some freight trains have many locomotives at the front, in the middle, and also at the rear. Did you say many locomotives or many engines? That's the engine. Okay. Yes. All right, last question. In which country was the first railway specifically built for high speed trains? A. The USA. B. France. Japan. C. Japan, the United Arab Emirates. 
Uh, Cole seemed pretty confident about Japan, so I'm going with that one. <laughs> Me too. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and Cole was correct. Nice job, Cole. Yay! Japan Japan's is famous for its bullet trains. Japan's high-speed bullet trains ran on a speed line built in the 1960s. Thank you for joining us for this quiz. I learned a lot myself. There you go. And one that you didn't say was, how many years ago did we finish the Transcontinental Railway in the United States? Ooh. Bonus question I for I put you this all. on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter oh. today. 150? Yes. 150 years today. Wow. That's what? right. Well, not today. I think it was yesterday, but this yeah. weekend, <laughs> basically. That's pretty cool, though. Yes, and there was a number of festivals going on this weekend in Utah, which is, I guess, where that final connection was made. I'm not 100% sure about that part, but but very fun. Thank you for sharing that, Sydney, on train day today. And part of my summer series is I wanted to talk about vacations in the early United States. And the word vacation actually comes from the Latin root vacare, which means to be unoccupied. So I thought, hmm, I wonder what people used to do to be unoccupied. Oh, wow, that really doesn't sound like our vacations, does it? <laughs> it doesn't. It sounds, sounds like somebody thought the definition was drag people around to do things all the time. <laughs> or give them the opportunity. Oh, yeah. So I was wondering what people used to do for vacations back in the early United States. And the answers I was getting really pointed me back to pre-United States history because the early Americans didn't do a lot of things for vacation in the early years of the country. So as far back as the Romans, we can see the roots of vacations in civilization. Any idea why the Romans specifically were a civilization that vacation might have taken root in? Well, the Romans were among the first to be able to produce enough that they could get amenities for themselves. And also, they weren't a subsistence-only civilization. They had excess, so they were able to go and spend wealth on things that they wanted. Right. The Romans were the first nation to travel because foreign vacations required a period of peace and prosperity. The Roman Empire was the first civilization to enjoy such a period in recorded history and put the infrastructure in place to allow vacations to happen. Right. Well, and you have some very well-established maritime routes and also a great road system that let people get around the empire. Right. And that was really easily, right. That's right. That was the first time that all that kind of came together where you can say if you had the peace, you had the prosperity, and you had the infrastructure in place. Right. Where more than the elite class could go on vacation. Now, in the United States, it's typical for people to take one or two weeks off during the summer and maybe two to four to five weeks off throughout the year total. In other parts of the world, other nations will take a month off or like six weeks off. Back at Roman times, they actually would take vacations for two years at a time. Oh my my goodness. Yeah, so they would take a period of time when they'd go out into the Roman Empire. And because travel was slow, it would take a long time for them to go out and come back in. We can see that the vacations were a real thing in the Roman times because they even had guidebooks. They you know, did. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, funny. So they had a, for instance, this description of Greece that set the standard for what a travel guide could look like. So we talk about the geography, the religious art, the architecture of different parts of the Greek world. 
So when the fall of Rome happened and the descent into the Dark Ages, vacations as we know it, as we knew it in the Roman times, actually took a break. So travel throughout the Dark Ages and much of the medieval period happened for only one or two reasons at the time. One was for finding new land to call your own or for raiding the lands of your enemies. So because of the constant threat of battle combined with now the unsafe travel routes that had been put in place by the Romans, the idea of traveling anywhere except locally just didn't happen anymore. Well, it's interesting because with the Romans, part of the safety of those roads was because they had a standing army. Army, that's right. They were able to protect it. During the medieval period, no nation actually had a standing army. Right. It was completely mercenaries. So no nation was able to effectively guard their roads in the way that the Romans were. So one of the exceptions, and there's always an exception, for um, this idea of vacating, <laughs> to vacationing, during the Dark Ages was for a pilgrimage. Religious travelers would embark on a pilgrimage for years for whatever their religion connection is and that was one of the few reasons to travel for an extended period of time so things like roadside inns and markets and things like that still existed in the dark ages but they tended to be more for pilgrimages or other reason to travel which would have been traders people that were in the trade business along trade routes. Um, So there was a network of inns and monasteries and and markets along the way of trade routes as well. So the south of Italy actually acted as a bridge between Rome and Jerusalem. And there was quite a few of these kind of trade routes with inns and monasteries and places for people to stay along the way. And we can see that in history as well in different maps and stories that have been captured over the years. As you move through the Dark Ages and you move over to the United Kingdom, during the Tudor period, there was some leisure travel that happened during that period as well, but that was really reserved for the royalty and the court. Vacations were taken by monarchs, and those vacations were called the Royal Progress. And usually it involved the king or queen traveling to different towns where they would stay, sometimes for as long as a month. Although... The Royal Progress was usually for leisure. The monarchs mainly traveled to other towns for publicity, since there wasn't a way for them to get their word out, to get their face out there any other way. They actually used these progresses as an opportunity to be seen by the people that they were leading. King Henry VIII took a progress with his new wife, Anne Boleyn, as queen, for her to be seen and to promote the reformation of the church that he was trying to go after. The Royal Progress usually happened twice every year, once in summer and once in winter. Well, in summer, London was filled with diseases, uncomfortable heat, bad smells, so that was a good opportunity for them to skedaddle out of town and go enjoy the neighboring towns and do some relaxing, hunting, enjoying the not-as-hot weather along the way. So the court traveled mostly to nearby places. We would consider them that far away today. But they could involve as many as a thousand people that had to be put up somewhere along the way. You can imagine how difficult it would be to host that number of people. So a lot of time it was an honor to host the monarch, but it was also hugely stressful and expensive. They have examples where people built entire new wings of their homes or had to commission new tableware because they didn't have enough. 
the hosts were anxious to make sure everything worked well. And because the monarch basically was staying for a month, and he was considering this a vacation, it was very hard work for you and for all of your servants to maintain that. Uh, Henry VIII actually at one point took 4,000 people with him on one of these progresses. So I can't even imagine trying to host that even you know, in a small town. That's a lot of new people that are expecting the best of everything along the way. Yeah, it's a huge burden for them. Right, and the Tudors specifically didn't have to worry about customs and baggage allowance. It was commonplace for the monarch's luggage to include things like dinnerware, tapestry, bedding, and even beds. So this was a large caravan. Henry VIII actually brought his own cook, his own organist, and his own choir. <laughs> I guess that's why it gets up to 4,000 people. Like I said, the length of stays could vary based on where they are traveling to from one night to 15 days, depending on the weather, food shortages, and even diseases. Now, during the Renaissance period, then, travel was mainly used for trade and battle. So the sea travel was dangerous, as there was a lot of pirates during that period as well. But that is the period where we saw a rise in the popularity of exploring. And this was because there were many advances in shipbuilding during those years that saw galleons replace rowing boats. This encouraged more people to take to the sea in their curiosity for the undiscovered world and to see sights and sounds that they've never seen before. So those are the years we think of people exploring the world and mapping out new regions of the world that the Europeans hadn't seen before. That kind of leads us up to the time frame of the United States. Now, in the early years of the United States from the 1600s all the way to the 1700s and early 1800s, the United States was in a period of forming and turmoil with the Revolutionary War and then the Civil War. So there wasn't a lot of, or really any to speak of, vacationing happening in the United States at the time. So I, you know, I look back and there was a few small things that people did locally, but there wasn't like a, this concept of vacation. Um, right. Whether it was a, well, during that period, it would have been a lot of, like I said, the subsistence living. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. So people would have just been, they wouldn't have any excess money or goods to spend on vacation or any time to go right. on vacation. Right, and there wasn't the infrastructure. So you think back to Rome when they had peace, prosperity, and infrastructure in the right. United States you during those periods. Those things. Yeah. You didn't have a lot of any of that. And even the places you had some peace and prosperity, some of the bigger towns on the East Coast, they did do a little bit of going to the beach and things like that, but it wasn't for vacation per se. Right. It might have been for a day outing or something like that, something local that they could do. And they saw most of the wilderness as something to be conquered. Very rough, not a lot of roads, just some paths here and there. Mm. So it wasn't until post-Civil War that the United States really started to get to the point where it could embrace the concept of vacations on a larger scale. And that's what I'll be talking about in two weeks from now after our Father's Day episode. That's very interesting. Thank you, Dad. As always, we end our podcast with future festivities. These festivities are the week of June 3rd. June 3rd is repeat day. Could you repeat that? So June 3rd is repeat day. (laughs) June 4th cracks me up. It's hug your cat day. Oh, uh-huh. I'm going to hug my cat. They love that. I was going to say, cats everywhere are going to really enjoy that day. <laughs> they hate that day. Some dog put that day together. <laughs> <laughs> June 5th is Hot Air Balloon Day. June 6th is D-Day, celebration of D-Day from World War II. June 7th is National 
Donut Day. Yay! Yeah. A drive-through Dunkin' Donuts opened up locally, so I guess <gasps> that'll be a busy day for that place. June 8th is Best Friends Day. So I think you're best friends that day. June 9th is Donald Duck Day. Oh, that's funny. You're wearing a Donald Duck shirt. I do have Donald Duck on my shirt. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for joining us this week. We'll continue our summer series. Next week will be Father's Day and the celebration of Father's Day. As always, you can find us on social media for Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons. On Instagram at Holiday Moons, all one word. On Facebook, you can find our Facebook page and group by searching for Holiday Moons. And you can contact us at any time at holidaymoons at gmail.com. So for Cole, Beth, Sydney, and Randy, Happy Happy Summertime! Summertime!